How do you get to know a stranger? Your voice is as unique to you as your thumbprint. So why not start there? This is Tin Cans, a special project produced in partnership with the Wheeler Centre for the 2017 Digital Writers Festival. I'm Izzy Robertsor, the Artistic Director, and what you're about to hear is a collaborative, sound-based call and response, an intimate audio exchange between a pair of audio producers. From Darwin to Sydney and back again, listen as they get to know each other, one question at a time. Hi, Jess. My name is Olivia Rosenman. I am an audio producer. I am surprised at how difficult the task of introducing myself is. I've started this recording three times already. Uh, I live in Sydney. Right now I'm sitting in my home office, which is where I do most of my work. I grew up in Canberra. I've spent a chunk of my life living in China. Enough about me. I'd like to ask you a question. What does a typical Saturday look like for you? Hi, Olivia. It's Jess. Darwin is surrounded by water. But for most of the year, we can't go in it. There's the risk of box jellyfish and, of course, the ever-present risk of crocodiles. Though every now and then, mainly in the dry season, we take a risk. I take that risk with my friends and my partner. On the weekend, on a Saturday, we laze. We laze by the beach and the water when the tides are beautiful and the rock pools are full. Well, there's that that moment where you realise that where you live is beautiful. No matter how much you try and resist it, something about the place. I am preparing for the sweaty times ahead where the sweat runs down your chest when you walk two minutes down the road. That feeling of having a wet doona and a wet beanie and wet socks thrown over you. It's a trying time in this tropical town. Darwin changes so quickly from dry to wet, wet to dry. My Saturdays change with it. Ah, aircon. You notice it straight away. The raw sugar, thank you. The markets are Darwin's vein. There's a throb that runs through the markets and there's so many of them to choose from. They are a weekend expedition. A hangover is sold with a laksa, a tropical juice, a veggie spring roll. Hello, can I just have a... Uh, vegetarian spring roll. 
it's taken me a long time to realise, and even longer to admit, that Saturdays in Darwin, my hometown, they really are a special thing. I'm coming to you from a particularly cool September morning in Darwin, and I'm about to take my friend's dog for a walk, who I'm dog-sitting at the moment. And it made me think, it is quarter to eight on a Saturday, and I wondered whether you're a morning person or an evening person. I'll chat to you soon. I hear this sound at 6 o'clock every morning. When my clock ticks over from 5.59 to 6am, the curfew ends and like clockwork, planes fly in overhead to touch down at Sydney Airport. Such is the joy of living in Sydney's inner west. Well, if I'm honest, here is probably not 100% accurate. Is there a word for the way a human processes the sounds she is subjected to as she sleeps? I guess it's more like sensing, but that word doesn't seem quite right. I used to actually hear it though. My alarm used to go off every morning at 5.55am for my shift working as a journalist with a newswire. I did this job for two years, most of it in Hong Kong, but the last six months in Sydney. And that 5.55 alarm made me pretty miserable. Sure, there were the occasional mornings when watching the sunrise over Hong Kong's Victoria Harbour as I walked to work filled me with admiration and a sense of calm. But mostly, I felt pretty wretched dragging myself out of bed as my partner slept on peacefully. In fact, he rarely even stirred when I got up. So why am I telling you all of that? I guess the reason is that I'm not sure the answer to the question, am I a morning person or am I an evening person? Having listened to what I've just said, it sounds pretty obvious, right? But the thing is that even though getting up that early every day made me pretty miserable, I did it for two years and I was completely able to function in the first hours of those ungodly early morning shifts. I just wasn't happy about it. You know how some people spend the first hour or so of their day in a slowed down, almost half-sleep, half-waking state? Or even longer if coffee isn't forthcoming? Well, that's not me. Nine times out of ten, the minute I wake up, I am alert, cheerful, and chatty. My partner tends towards the former constitution, so as you can imagine, our mornings are not always harmonious. Late last week, I paid my sister and two gorgeous nephews a visit, and at 5.45am, I was woken by the pitter-patter of two tiny feet into my room. Oh my God, God, it is sick. 
pretty difficult to get Grumpy at a ridiculously cute two-year-old who wants you to read the Gruffalo. Alright, should we read the Gruffalo? But I'm sure the novelty of that would wear off. These days, I work for myself, which means the true delight of being 100% in charge of my own schedule. My alarm is set for the much more reasonable time of 7.15, and because it only takes me 20 seconds to get to work, my office is two doors down the hallway, I usually sit in bed catching up on news and emails with a coffee until almost 8 o'clock. Hello and welcome to RN Breakfast. Fran Kelly with you on this Thursday, the 28th of September. Okay, so I realise I'm equivocating here. Maybe we should look at the other end of the day. Working for myself also means I regularly work at night. There are nights I might sit back down at my computer after dinner to fit in a couple more hours of editing or emailing. And that's fine with me too. So does that make me an evening person? The thing is, by the time I crawl into bed though, that's another story. I can't actually read at night in bed because at most I'll get through one page or two if I'm lucky before I've dropped the book either on my face or on the floor and I'm out cold until the next morning. So yes, you're probably still waiting for an answer. I guess the answer is I'm neither or I'm both. Of course, one of the benefits of working for yourself and working from home is the joy of the afternoon nap. But I guess that's a whole nother story. So Jess, the question I want to ask you is, how do you find living in a tropical climate? And what do you think people living in Australia's more temperate regions just don't get? Hi, Olivia. So I've done up a little pros and cons list to answer your question of what it's like to live in a tropical climate. So I'm going to start with the pros. The dry season is during your winter. It's a pretty sweet alternative. The humidity drops off, it becomes cooler, and Darwin comes alive. We have festivals and events and tourists who descend. So Darwin swirls with energy. Camping adventures to national parks and beyond, definitely a big pro. We have access to some of the most amazing parts of Australia, but tent life is tricky and sticky in the wet. So I would mark this largely a dry season activity. Ocean dips are possible in the dry season and the washing dries in probably 20 minutes. It's also pretty great to have to get up in the middle of the night and actually turn your fan down because it's chilly or even better if you have to turn it off. Exquisite sunsets are fucking insanely beautiful. This happens in both the wet and the dry, but the wet season sunsets definitely win. When the wet properly arrives, it's sensational. Even though it takes forever for your washing to dry because the air is already so thick with moisture and the cacophony of green tree frogs looking for a root is ridiculously loud, the shift in the air when the rains are approaching, the breeze carries a smell with it, comes indescribable relief and torrential downpours jackhammer the tin roofs. Ferocious storms during the wet season with thunder and lightning so loud it sounds like your house is being split apart. That's definitely a pro. And so is the distant threat of cyclones. I know that sounds a bit odd but they're always weirdly exciting. I don't actually have a cycling kit ready or anything like that so I should probably get organized. It's also beautiful that heading into the wet 
the plants around the top end start to flower. So there are all these beautiful bursts of colour that peer through the fences. And I love a Darwin Christmas spent with my friends drinking beer in the pool. Darwin's population really drops off during this time because so many people are from interstate. It's around this time of year that I feel so connected to my place of birth and the friends and the family I have here and realising that it's a place I resisted letting back into my life for so long. So, on to the cons. The Larrakia people are the traditional owners of the Darwin region and they recognise seven different seasons. We're currently in the Dalragang season and the Larrakia say that the winds die down, which leaves a tenseness in the air. And I tend to agree with this. The build-up brings an unspoken tropical tension. The nights are still and heavy, kind of like we're all just struggling to stay afloat. The relentless heat and humidity during a build-up day is tough. All I can say is imagine putting on a wet jumper and standing in the sun and then try not to feel pissed off. <laughs> to answer your question of what is it that those living in Australia's more temperate regions might not understand, I think it's this. Just how much the build-up can eat away at you. I feel overwhelmed and weighed down during the build-up. Everything gets under my skin. I hate that I always feel clammy. Everything's oppressive. The tease of the storms during the build-up is hard. Clouds fill the sky and they're ready to burst and then nothing. Or we get this pissy little sun shower and all that does is just make everything more humid. Oh, and we also aren't able to swim in the ocean during the wet season and the build-up, which is pretty shit. Thanks to the threat of box jellyfish. But the biggest con is wet season mold. Last year, mold kicked my ass. My bed sheets started growing mold and all of my clothes. I nearly came undone. So there you go. Thankfully, there's more pros than cons about living in Darwin, but being up here sometimes feels like a bewildering survival test. All this talk about hometowns. Where do you identify as being home? Hi, Jess. I've called a few places home in my life, so I thought the best way to tell you about that would be through the sounds that I most associate with each. I was born in Canberra and lived there for the first 17 years of my life, except for a brief stint in Verona, Italy, as a four-year-old, and another period living in Boston as an 11-year-old, and then later a high school exchange in Grenoble, France. Canberra, well, Canberra's just really quiet. For many people, the sound of Canberra would be that soul-destroying drone of politicians. Thank you, Mr Speaker, and I thank the Honourable Member for his question. Uh, Mr Speaker, I spoke with the Prime Minister... For me, though, it's the crunch of bone-dry vegetation underfoot. After a gap year of work and travel, I settled in Sydney for uni, and while I grew to love this big and bustling beachside city, which is quite the contrast from Canberra, I seemed to have left a little piece of my heart on my overseas travels in China. In 2008, I moved to Jinan, a big, dirty city in China's northeast, for a year-long university exchange. 
The sound I most associate with this time is the strong and particular accent of northern Chinese. In northern China, people pronounce their R's really hard. It's almost piratical, and it's thoroughly enjoyable to listen to. At the beginning of 2009, I returned to Sydney to finish my degree, but I still hadn't quite scratched my China itch. So in 2011, I moved back to China, this time to the lush tropical city of Nanning in the southwestern province of Guangxi. After a year in Nanning, followed by a year in Guangzhou, where the soundtrack switched to Cantonese, I moved to Hong Kong, which became my third home in as many years, and I stayed put there for three more. There are two sounds that are baked into my memories of Hong Kong. The first is the steady and stressful thud of a pile driver. One of my favourite responses to the question, how do you like Hong Kong, was always, I think it'll be great when it's finished. Hong Kong is a city seemingly under eternal construction. In fact, my partner and I had our first date at a construction site where he helped me recording the sound of a pile driver for a story I was writing for the newspaper about noise pollution. The second sound is the beep of the octopus. Hong Kong's transport card, the octopus, is not only used for the MTR, buses, trams and ferries, it's also used to make payments at shops, restaurants and vending machines. So that dude of the octopus is heard by most Hong Kongers multiple times each day. But two years ago, I moved back to Sydney. And while it's not actually my hometown, it's definitely the place I call home. And in Sydney, the soundtrack to my life includes the chirps and warbles of magpies and pesky minor birds in the trees around my apartment, the whirring roar of planes overhead that I've already told you about, And lastly, the regular buzz, groan, and hiss of coffee machines, a sound that I sorely missed in China. So Jess, my next question is, have you always lived in Darwin? And where do you consider home? Hi, Olivia. So to answer your last question of have I always lived in Darwin and where do I consider home, we should start at the beginning. I was born at Royal Darwin Hospital to an Australian mother and a Malaysian Chinese father. I had a pretty great East meets West childhood, one that was largely spent running around naked and not really having a care in the world. I hit year 12 and I had that urge everyone has one to escape their hometown, particularly if it's small. That urge to find a place that's bigger than yourself in some ways, I suppose. I headed to Brisbane to study, and then I ended up staying for nine years. My ties back to Darwin were tenuous, and over time I put a lot of distance between myself and my hometown that really did feel too pokey for me. I would visit the parents for Christmas and stay, well, a whole three days, pretty much, before flying back to Brisbane. After nine years in Brisbane, I started to get that suffocating itch. So I moved to Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia with AusAid's Australian Youth Ambassador for Development Program. The year I ended up having in Mongolia was one I really didn't expect. I fell in love with its charisma and chaos. Freedom, fear and fun ran through my frozen limbs. I found solace in the Gobi Desert, 
I questioned my mortality while watching a sheep's throat be slit in Bayanulgi. I trained it to Siberia where I was a tiny blip on a frozen lake by Carl, the world's oldest and deepest freshwater lake. I survived a lot of vodka, a minus 40 degree winter and the incredible pollution that comes with a city aching for warmth. What almost broke me though was coming back to Darwin, a place where I had to come back to when I lost myself. After 10 years away, living with my parents in my childhood home and single bed at the age of 28 was not quite the global vision I had for myself. With my suitcase still freshly smelling of the smog and coal of Mongolia, the thigh-high yak wool socks that had saved my legs in minus 40 degree walks to work still warm, I had no idea of the turbulence that lay ahead, as I was adamant I was only in transit and I'd be out of Darwin in a month. But a month turned into a few, and my destinations extended only so far as the lounge room floor, where I would listen to Dr. G. Yunapingu and cry, wondering how the fuck this had become my life. And then to the gym, where I shed away my Mongolian vodka winter coat while yearning to be anywhere else. Now, after four years, I suppose you could say that Darwin has become my home again. I've gone full circle. I definitely have a love-hate relationship with the place, as you would have heard in my other pieces, but for the most part, I've been sucked back in. And thankfully, Darwin is a forgiving place. So as I send this last tin can to you, my new friend through sound, I reflect back on my day, one that was spent traversing a national park, in humid weather, in a rattly four-wheel drive, with some old dear friends who, like Darwin, have generously welcomed me back. So, before we part ways, Olivia, my last question for you is, I would really love to know what's in your fridge and what your favourite meal is. Hi Jess, that is such a great question. I think I'll split my answer into the things that are always in my fridge and the things that happen to be in my fridge right now. So in my fridge, there is always at least one and often two large jars of kimchi. I got into making kimchi a couple of years ago and I'm pretty obsessed with it. It's something I eat most days. There's definitely always milk. Both me and my partner drink a lot of coffee. And in fact, one of our first communal purchases was a pretty fancy coffee machine. So that's definitely a staple. There's always a lot of fruit and a lot of vegetables. Having moved back to Australia from Hong Kong two years ago, I'm still overjoyed every time I enter the supermarket or a greengrocer at the diversity and quality of the fruit and vegetables that are available. Something that just wasn't the case in Hong Kong where everything was imported and had spent several weeks, if not months, in cold storage on a shipping container. There is a tub of Korean red chili bean paste which doesn't actually go in the kimchi but I use to fry up kimchi eggs which is a staple meal of mine. There's often a beer or two and there is also always a large one litre bottle of maple syrup 
which comes from my partner's family farm just outside of Toronto in Canada, and that is pretty special. Now, at the moment, there's also a jar of sambal, uh, which is there pretty regularly. I made a batch on the weekend. I eat that with nasi lemak, one of my favorite meals. So, of course, another crucial component of that meal is eggs. There's always eggs in my fridge. There is about half of what was a two kilogram wheel of Pepe Saya butter, which is a fancy brand of butter available that's made here in Sydney. That was purchased as a gift for my housemate who is a weightlifter and consumes large amounts of butter and that is her favorite. And there's also a couple of mangoes. I impulse bought a tray on the weekend, which was possibly a little bit too much, but hey, they keep well in the fridge. I'm sure you're familiar with an abundance of mangoes living in Darwin. So Jess, this is our last postcard, which makes me really sad. I feel like there's a lot more questions I wanted to ask you and we're just getting going. So it's been really cool. And thank you for sharing your audio postcards with me. Our Tin Cans artists were Jess Ong and Olivia Rosenman, coordinated by our podcast producer, Beth Gibson. This year, the Digital Writers Festival runs from the 24th of October until the 3rd of November. To find out more about the artists and this year's festival, head to digitalwritersfestival.com.